How happy and blessed are we that all of the voices of the Orangewood Kids Choir is here? Amen. Amen. Can we just give them one more round of applause if you're comfortable with that? Um, I, I want to re-welcome all of you who are here this morning. I always love when Orangewood comes for one reason. I was brought up in the Orange County churches from the Anaheim Spanish Church to the Sunkiss Church. And whenever Orangewood comes, it always brings some of you that are old friends of mine that I haven't seen in a while. And so I am, as I look around, I, I see Dr. and Mrs. Chamby, who have been like second parents to me, and, and his son back there, Israel, who's been like a brother to me over the years, and, and Virgilio. And I think there's an old friend who, um, Brother Estrada. I mean, there's just so many of you. Yeah, I have just, you guys should come here every single Sabbath. Your pastors will understand. <laughs> Will you bow your heads with me now as we pray? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the gift that you have given the teachers of Orangewood. We're thankful for the voices of the children and for the dedication of their parents and, and just all that it takes to, to get them to Orangewood and to get them here this morning. And so we pray that just for the next few moments, that as we open up your word, that you would give us fresh eyes to see a story that we have read hundreds of times. We thank you for your presence. In your name we pray. Amen. So I know there's a lot of kids here, so we're going to try to make this as simple as possible. Is that okay with all of you? By the way, we're getting out early today. If you look at your clocks, it's like 11.15. We started way early, so you're welcome. <laughs> How many of you have ever had an assignment or a work project or a medical exam, and it was something that you were dreading? And it was something that was consuming you, and it was bothering you, and it was causing you stress and anxiety. Are you the most lovely person to have around when you're stressed out? Probably not. Your wife can tell you probably not. Your, your brothers and your friends. See, the truth is when there is something that's going to make us uncomfortable or painful, and we have to wait to get to that, the closer we get to that appointment or that assignment or that project or, or that public speaking engagement, the more nervous we get, the more anxiety it creates, and oftentimes, the more difficult we are to deal with for other people. This morning, we're going to be looking at not just how can we live our lives in a more peaceful manner, but we're going to be doing it by looking at one of the most important days in the scriptures, Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is usually one of the things that we talk about the week before Easter weekend, but one of the things that we're doing here is we're beginning to look at the final week of the life of Jesus. And we're starting with Palm Sunday and we're going all the way to Resurrection Sunday. And the reason we're doing this is because this is the central story of our Christian faith. This is the pinnacle of what Jesus came to do. And so when we look at the story of Jesus, we see that on Palm Sunday, Jesus already knew that that Friday he would be laying down his life. On Palm Sunday, when Jesus enters Jerusalem on a cult, he already knew what would be happening on Thursday and Friday and Saturday and Sunday. Now, when we read the story of Jesus and his death and resurrection, it's not as painful for us because we already know how the story ends. How many of you have ever seen a movie and it seems like the main character, like it's the end for him and he's not going to make it? But then we remember, oh, this is a movie, it's going to end well for the most part, so we're not that worried. And I think sometimes we do that with the story of Jesus' death. We say, well, we know he's going to be resurrected. 
But he, have you ever thought of the anguish, the anxiety, the fear that Jesus might have felt going all the way to Friday? Because see, we, think, we just think, well, Jesus was God, and so he was going to be fine, and he already knew he was going to be resurrected. But how many of you have ever been crucified? I know what it feels like to get a splinter on my finger and how painful that is. Can you imagine that Jesus knew that he would be walking to his death, that he would lay his life down willingly, but it was still going to be painful? Yes, Jesus was God, but Jesus was also human. He still experienced very human emotions. Jesus still had to sleep. He still ate. He still drank water. He still, he did all of the things that human beings do. And I believe that when he lays down his life, he lays down his life as a human would, but also as someone who is fully divine. And so I want to look at how do we live our lives in a way that are modeled after the way of Jesus when even he knew he was going to a painful death and yet Jesus remained true to who God sent him to be. So if you have your Bibles, and, and even if you don't, there should be a red Bible in front of you. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 11. And the reason we're, we're basing our sermon series for the next six weeks on the book of Mark, it's because it was the first gospel written after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So this is the earliest accounts that we have. And so theoretically, the earlier it is, the more people remember, the better they remember a story. And so we want to take a look at that. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. And this is where Palm Sunday begins, and this is where the last week of Jesus' life begins on earth. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him the Lord needs it, and it will be sent back shortly. There was an understanding in the first century for the Jewish people that their Messiah would come to Jerusalem. The one that would come and establish the kingdom of God would come to Jerusalem, and Jesus now begins to make his way into Jerusalem. This is at the end of Jesus' life, where we already know that a lot of the religious establishment had had not accepted Jesus as the Messiah. They didn't believe that Jesus was the one that was supposed to make all things new. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ that would forgive all of the sins of the world. And yet Jesus was exactly that person. Jesus already knew how everything was going to work out. He already knew there would be a cult there because it was a prophecy that there would be an unwritten cult. So as he sends his disciples, this is the beginning of the culmination of the more central part of yours and my faith. And we keep reading. They went and found a colt, verse 4, outside in the street, tied at a door. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? And they answered as, Je as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw his cloaks on it, he sat on it, and many people spread their cloaks on the road, while many others spread branches they had cut in the field. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, 
when you think of a king, do you think of a king riding in on a colt? Do you guys even know what a colt looks like? I don't, but I'm assuming it's not like a horse. See, Jesus as the king, the Messiah, the coming Christ, he didn't ride in with a military power. He didn't ride in with the, with the cavalry. He didn't ride in with chariots and war horses and spears. He didn't ride in with soldiers that had armor and swords. Jesus walks in on a colt, and all of his followers, all they had were palm branches. See, the people that believed in Jesus remembered that this was the one whom they were waiting for. Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, actually describes Jesus. And it says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly or humbly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt the fowl of a donkey. The prophet Zechariah had already prophesied and had said that Jesus would come in on a colt. So when Jesus, all of a sudden, he was first just with his 12 disciples, and you could just imagine seeing Jesus coming from around the corner, and all of a sudden his followers see this, and their only reaction, because they knew the prophecy they had been waiting for the coming Messiah, for his followers. They waited for someone who would come in on a colt, right? The offspring or whatever they call it of a donkey. So as soon as they see Jesus riding, people start taking their cloaks off and start throwing them on the floor in front of them because they realized that this was the Messiah, that this was the Savior that they were waiting for. And they picked up palm branches and, and, it, and the palm branches kind of spoke to the Maccabean revolt that we're not even going to get into years before. But you see, these people, they didn't pick up swords. They didn't come and start a war with the, uh, with the Roman Empire because they knew that the kingdom that Jesus was coming to establish wasn't a kingdom like the Roman Empire that needed power and domination, but rather they knew that the kingdom that Jesus was coming to establish was something far superior than any, any, any earthly government ever could be. You know, this speaks so much to the political season, and this is not a political commentary other than we cannot look to our politicians to guide us in the way of God. Amen. Because they are not there to, to, to lift up Scripture and teach us how to live, but they're there to get votes, and they prey off of our fears. The truth is that we must look to only one person to teach us the ways of faith and of scripture. And it's not a president, no matter which side of the aisle you're on, okay? Republican or Democrat, it doesn't matter. We are only to look to one person to teach us how to live life at its fullest, and his name is what? Jesus. Jesus came to establish a reality that far surpassed even the best country and even the best government. Now, as good Christians, we must live by the laws of the land, obviously, right? Jesus tells us, right? Give to Caesars what is Caesars. Of course, we have to be exemplary citizens. But the kingdom of God and the kingdom that Jesus established was far superior to that. Now, I want you to keep that picture of Jesus in mind. Jesus comes in. People, the only reaction they can do is throw up palm branches and throw their cloaks in front of them, kind of as welcoming. That was their version of a red carpet, 
Now, this Sunday, not this Sunday, the Sunday we're talking about in Scripture, Palm Sunday was the beginning of the week when you would find more than 200,000 Jewish people flocking to the city of Jerusalem. Can anybody guess why? What was happening that week at the end of the week? Passover. So Sunday was the first day of the week. And from the east, I believe it's from the east, Jesus rides into Jerusalem. However, although Jesus was what we could call a peasant procession, right? It was just a man coming in on a colt. From the west side of the city, Pontius Pilate, the governor of the area, he would come in from his place by the sea. He would come in on a war horse, on a chariot. He would have soldiers all around him. The, the governor's best soldiers would come in, in battle gear. So the emperor or the governor comes in. He's in his battle gear. He has maybe 300 or more of his best soldiers all dressed, ready to go to war. At least that's what they look like. Not only that, they would carry the, the, the pole, and on top of the pole, it would have a golden eagle, which was the sign and the, the symbol of Romans' power and speed and how they were able to conquer anyone and any country that they would go into. And as we know, they, they had conquered almost a lot of the known world at the time. Not only that, they would have banners, and, and we've seen banners right at the Rose Parade or any kind of parade. We see banners that talk about you know, the band or the people, whatever it is, right, the high school or the organization they're with. In the first century, when Pilate would walk in, he would also have soldiers at the front of this procession, a military procession, whose purpose was to instill fear and the idea that they could dominate anyone. And on that banner, do you know what it was written on that banner? It would have the words, Caesar is Lord. That kind of should make us kind of be like, oh, no, Jesus is Lord. But see, the truth is, is that the first, in the first century, the emperor Caesar believed that he was actually the incarnate son of God, that he descended from the god Apollo. Not only that, the first century people who believed this would also say things like this. There is no name under the heavens who people can be saved than the name of Caesar. So from one side of the city comes this military power purposely trying to show their strength because they knew that from the other side of the, of the town, Jesus was coming in and he could potentially rally 200,000 people to revolt against them. And so there are two processions coming into the city on that week. One of them is the dominant worldview that power and military might can handle everything. And the other procession, the procession of Jesus, is that the kingdom of God is far superior than anything that we have witnessed in our time and in all of history. And this morning, you have the choice. Which way will you choose to live your life? Will you live the way that is guided by the way of Jesus where Jesus teaches love and mercy and generosity and inclusion? Or will you choose to live the way of Rome or the dominant worldview? Right? We, we look at the world around us and, and it's about power. It's about consuming more things. It's about getting more wealth. It's about what I want. 
But when we talk about scripture and we see the word repentance, Jesus calls us to turn away from the dominant worldview that is all around you and follow the path that Jesus walked. So when these people said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. The word Hosanna in the Greek literally means to rescue us because they knew that this was the Messiah. So can we look at one more story in scripture? Amen? Are you still with me? Let's look at Exodus chapter 3 to give you just a tiny bit more background to show you why these people were saying, rescue us, Hosanna in the highest. They were crying out, they were worshiping God, and they were referring back and they were remembering this story in Mark chapter, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 9. The story of the Exodus is summed up in this verse. Exodus chapter 3, verse 9. And this is what it says. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. This is God speaking. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So go now, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. You see, the Passover is a retelling of the story of the God who hears the cry of the oppressed and he does something about it. That is what Passover is all about. If you've ever gone to one of these Jewish seders, right, they retell the story of the egg and the bitter herbs and the lamb. And the reason the bread was unleavened and flat was because they didn't have time to let the bread dough rise. And so they just left, as the Bible calls it, in haste. And just in case you still don't know the story we're talking about, because I know that not all of us have been in church all our lives, if you just turn over to Exodus chapter 12, just a couple of verses over, and when we, when we talk about this word, the Passover, and, and for so many people, we're not really sure what it means, and so it'll, it'll be right here. It was the final event before God rescues the Israelites out of Egypt. There had been plagues before this to try to convince the Pharaoh that they, he needed to let the Israelites go. And on that final one, that final night before they left, God tells Moses to tell the Israelites, listen, put the you know, slaughter a lamb, eat the lamb, and then put the blood of the lamb over your doorpost, right? So just imagine over the doorpost on the outside of the house. And here's what verse 13 says in, in Exodus 12 to follow that story. Verse 12, on the same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord, verse 13, the blood will be a sign for you, so the blood on the doorpost will be a sign to you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's the Passover. The Passover is a reminder that God forgives, that God takes care of you, and that God hears your cry in the midst of your worst oppression, and God is at work to do something about it. And when we come to the final week of Jesus' life, on that Palm Sunday where he rides in, Jesus is mentally, I believe, preparing himself to take on not just the things that would happen that week, but ultimately take on the sins of the world so that you and I would be forgiven, 
So that as you're sitting here in February 20th, 2016 in the Orange Seventh-day Adventist Church, you would have the assurance that even the worst of your sins are in fact forgiven. The mistakes that people try to keep pointing back in your past, that is forgiven. The mistakes that you keep not allowing yourself to forgive yourself, God has already forgiven because there is power in the blood of Jesus. It's not just that it's in the blood, but it's the symbolic and the real implications that Jesus as an innocent man laid his life down so that you wouldn't have to. So when we start with Palm Sunday, it is a reminder that you have a choice that you can either choose to live following the way of Jesus or you can choose to live by following the ways of the dominant world, or the dominant narrative of the world, rather. You can either choose to go after the things that the world tells you are good and valuable or you can go the way of Jesus and live a life of service, of generosity, of forgiveness, of inclusion, and ultimately a life that is compelled by the love of Christ. And so this morning, we want to just leave that in your hands now. And we know that God has been working on every single one of you. We know that from the moment you were born and even from the time that God dreamed you up, God has been at work pursuing you because God wants to redeem you and God wants to give you the abundant life that Jesus talks about. And when we look at this final week of Jesus' life, it is not just showing us how we must live even in the midst of knowing our, our fateful end. But it is also a reminder that God hears your prayers, God hears your cries, and he is doing something about it because he has already sent a savior once and God continues to send his spirit into your life to fill you, to shape you, to transform you, and to bring you to peace. And although you may continue to experience troubles and hardship in this life, because that's just a part of life here, right? We're just, we're not fooling anyone. Even the most faithful people experience difficult times in their life. Right? The Bible never teaches that there won't be tough times. What the Bible does teach is that in the midst of the storm, Jesus will be there to help you find peace. And in the midst of the storm, God walks alongside you to get you through the storm because God knows that as you get through the storm, your faith will grow, your character will strengthen, and you will be able to give God the glory in every circumstance. Let us pray. Gracious God, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the challenging words that are found within those pages of scripture. But we're even more thankful that you are a God who loves us, that you are a God whose grace surpasses even our worst mistakes. And we pray that as we experience this forgiveness, Lord, that we would live our lives as an offering to you, that we would follow you, that we would glorify you, and we pray that your spirit would fill us in a way that would enable us to do those things. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.